0: Hey everyone, Ben here with a quick interruption before we get into today's episode to let you know that we have been nominated for a Sports Podcast Award. Yippee! That is very, very exciting. We are actually incredibly honoured and excited to have that nominee. And you, the listener, yes, the very person that is listening to this right now, can help us win a Sports Podcast Award and get us on the podium for once rather than always being off the podium. To do so, head to sportspodcastawards.com. Dot com register to vote click on the best Olympic and Paralympic podcast category where you can then vote for us to win now you will have to listen to the other nominees as well but let's be honest you know you're going to vote for us because you're listening to our show today which means we know you like us and we'd very much appreciate the vote in advance Sportspodcastawards.com, that's how you do it and we thank you in advance and everybody who votes for us We promise to thank you in our acceptance speech, should we win. Right now, I'm going to shut up, play some music, and then you're going to hear me talk again as we get into today's episode of Off The Podium. Enjoy. (laughs) They're standing and they're applauding that dramatic performance by James Orville and Christopher Dean.
1: Alex Philodeau. It takes a lot to make him happy and he is clearly pleased. She's up. She's moving nicely. She's got it. Uh, Yes! Sally Stable, 132.67, has won at least the medal. She's
0: 0.24 up UK. On the ice for the Gimlop. The Gimlop stop It is off the podium, and Olympics podcast coming to you once again for another interview episode. And as we get closer and closer to the Beijing Olympics, it's time to get a bit wintry in here as we are speaking to two-time Olympic aerial skier from Canada, Deidre Dion and an exciting chat this one because Deidre's got a very fascinating story uh, about overcoming adversity and everything else in between. She is an Olympic bronze medalist, one bronze back in Salt Lake City next to our very own Alyssa Camplin, of course famously won the gold for Australia. The other two competitors next to Alyssa on that podium were two Canadians, Deidre being one of them and Veronica Brenner who won the silver in that one so Deidre talks a lot about her journey to get to the Olympics, how she was basically on the couch watching the Nagano Olympic Games thinking, wouldn't it be great to be an Olympian one day? Four years later, she is an Olympian and she's winning an Olympic bronze medal. The experiences of being at Salt Lake and uh, the Olympic experience in general, a very famous Canadian Olympian who has been on this show, who she went to high school with and how that maybe was affected when she went back to her hometown after those Olympics. And as I said, overcoming adversity, a, a very powerful story about going to the Turin Olympics in 2006, five months prior to to that she broke her neck in an accident while competing and she was able to compete at the Olympic Games in 2006 incredible story and it's got an Australian connection too so you'll hear a little bit about that here as well and also to our Canadian listeners who may hear her voice during the Beijing Olympics very shortly during that coverage she talks a little bit more about going from on the snow to behind the snow behind the mic Behind the snow. You'll understand what I mean when you hear her talk about it. Here is our chat with two time Olympic aerial skier from Canada and Olympic bronze medalist, Deidre Dion. So excited to welcome our next guest to the show today. We are returning to the sport of freestyle skiing and returning to one of our favourite sports on the show, aerial skiing, by talking to a two-time Olympian, Olympic bronze medalist, and somebody who won their bronze medal in a very, very famous event for Australia, but she's not from Australia. She's from Canada, which is exciting in itself. Please welcome to Off The Podium, Deidre Dion. Deidre, first of all, welcome to Off The Podium. It's a pleasure to have you here on the show today.
1: Hi Ben, nice to meet you.
0: Nice to meet you too. It's, I, I guess it's probably not often you get introduced at being from a very famous event for another another country. I mean, most Australians fondly remember the, the 2002 women's aerials at the Salt Lake Olympics for what uh, Alyssa achieved, but uh, you obviously were standing next to her. So, I mean, you know, plenty of, plenty of things to talk about to you as well.
1: Yeah, I mean, that day was obviously huge for Australia. So I think part of the story is that it was historic for for the country and, and probably makes that day a little bit special in history compared to a lot of other Olympic events, which is pretty cool.
0: I actually vividly remember it for so many reasons, obviously, as an Australian, but I've always been in love with Canada. It's always kind of been my second home, second country behind Australia. And the thing that made that event so exciting for me was the fact that not only Australia won a gold, but then there was two other Canadians on the podium. So it was kind of like, wow, this is, this is great for my fandom because it's like gold for Australia, silver for Canada, bronze for Canada, the perfect podium.
1: Well, we kind of felt that way as well. I think we probably would have changed the order if, <laughs> if you know, we could have had our way, but I mean, obviously incredibly special. Uh, aerials is, is interesting. Like so many individual sports, you are friends with your competitors because at the heart of it, all your teammates, you travel around the coaching situations, you work with different teams. So I, I can say, you know, as a, as a group between Alisa and, and Veronica and I when when it came down to that, it was it was really special to share it together.
0: Now we've had many aerial skiers on the show, all from Australia, and it's always interesting to kind of hear the background of how they got in the sport for the most part from Australia. It's generally they're stolen away from gymnastics, uh, kind of I don't feel any and we're always talking to gymnasts on here going, Don't let those aerial skiers steal steal <laughs> you away. Like stay in the sport. We want some gymnastics medals. But how how is the scene In Canada, is it kind of a case of, given that you're basically born with skis on your feet, uh, you know, straight away, is it more of a case that people do grow up wanting to be aerial skiers rather than getting poached from different sports?
1: Well, everyone in Canada grows up wanting to play hockey, first off. So no one grows up saying, okay, I want to be an aerial skier. (laughs) But I would say, you know, it's, it's changed drastically since I entered the sport. So I was probably the last generation of a pure skier that didn't have gymnastics background whereas like today we go out and we actively recruit gymnasts and have like talent id sessions uh, similar to how australia and and russia you know all china all of the other countries are finding success but um i came into the sport as a ski racer so i i did alpine skiing and uh grew up at a very small hill not in the mountains and got bored of, of doing the same gates over and over, and was at that pivotal age of 12, 13, where uh, it felt cooler to go flying off jumps and hang out and, and be in that more relaxed atmosphere. And uh, my parents signed me up to be a mogul skier. And, and uh, I had a far more success early doing aerials and, and promptly, you know, turned my focus as quickly as possible to doing what my parents really didn't want me to do, which was the aerial side.
0: <laughs> which, I mean, this is what I love about freestyle skiing, because as an Australian who I tried skiing once, I lasted 30 seconds. I'm like, no, not for me. Um, you know, we, we're not exposed a lot to the skiing sports, but I, I then look at a moguls. I look at an aerial skiing. I'm like, why do people want to ski down bumps and like destroy their knees and then do flips? And why, why do people want to flip in the air for whatever, a couple of seconds and then potentially crash and, injure themselves i mean it's kind of different beasts athletes in freestyle skiing aren't they
1: (laughs) well and you're thinking of that with like an adult brain like go back to 13 and like there's nothing better than like launching yourself (laughs) off and losing your skis and having like an epic crash so i think the the age of like how you're assessing those risks is probably where the the entry point into the sport is and then it becomes the norm and you get good at it and it's more of a calculated risk as you as you grow older and fear really doesn't play in until later in your career because fear doesn't exist when you're, when you're young, it's more of this like invincibility towards who you are and what you can do.
0: Which is fascinating then on that level to say that you sort of come from alpine skiing. So generally when we're talking to aerial skiers and they've got the, the trick side of things down, they've just got to learn to ski. It's kind of the opposite for you. You've got the skiing down, Pat. You need to learn how to to flip and, and do all the tricks. I mean, is that the most challenging part, or are you just kind of throwing yourself off off the jumps, going like, "Ah, oh, I can, I can flip, I can do this. I'm young, uh, you know, I'm loving this."
1: So, like, I was so bad in the beginning. I, I don't have, I didn't have, and and I would say throughout my career, the same like acrobatic repetition as the gymnast did. So it was always like the the skiing landing, the tough landings, like that was easy for me. Whereas like learning flipping and learning twisting, learning body awareness was. What's the challenge? I would say like in a heartbeat, it's easier to teach people to ski um, as opposed to teach them to flip and twist and have that body awareness. But, um, you know, I I learned quickly and and where I excelled was I worked hard and and mentally I was good at working through problems and making sure that when it mattered, I, I showed up as best as I could
0: do you remember the first time you went on the jump? Like you went over the ramp oh,
1: absolutely. and, and yeah, what yeah. was
0: that like? What was that experience like the first time?
1: Well, water ramp, first of all. So, um, you know, you're, you have less of a, a horrible outcome, but it was just a front flip, right? So you just basically roll off the jump and, and do that flip and, and still remember the coach that walked me through it. He was a coach that stuck with me for, uh, probably like the first three or four years of my career really taught me about goal setting, really taught me about dreaming outside of uh, this, the small city that I lived in and thinking on a larger scale. And um, it was thrilling, right? Like there's something confidence building about standing there and, and not knowing an outcome, but committing to the process and then going through that process and then realizing like you could overcome that fear, overcome that anxiety and then go back and go back up and have that anxiety all over again and have to go through that process. And I think like as a whole, that is what absolutely drove me to the sport is it never got boring. Like that, that anxiety and that, that fear and that uncertainty existed with every single jump throughout your career. It got easier. And, and there's a skill set and repetition that, that, you know, made it achievable, but it was always in, it's always in your gut and it, it, never, it never ceased to be exciting, which is probably why you get a mix of adrenaline junkies and very rational people in the sport that on one side or the other, they're like, they're, they're filling a void that exists outside in, in real life on a day to day.
0: Did you grow up with Olympic aspirations? Was that sort of when you were doing Alpine that that was kind of the goal or or when you switched kind of into Aerials? Because at that point, if my maths are correct, sort of at that age when you started, this wasn't long after Lillehammer when Aerials made its debut at the Olympics. So was that kind of a a bonus in the sport too? If you could do well in it, you could go to an Olympic Games one day?
1: I grew up in a a Canadian city where like you dreamed of marrying a hockey player. So (laughs) I would say like... (laughs) so any city
0: in America right Uh, Canada (laughs) sorry yeah basically
1: (laughs) basically any middle-sized town in in Canada but um, I think I was fortunate enough uh, Jamie Soleil who's a figure skater was from Red Deer and so she went to my junior high and so I remember watching like the 94 Olympic but not necessarily like looking at skiing or freestyle and saying like that's going to be me but understanding that people from my community like achieved on a international level and then 98 is probably the first olympics that i i really consumed aerials and and i remember like names um like alice super who was like 14 or 15 and i mean she's still i think competing which is insane yeah. but, I was but like say, I remember- was she young
0: ever like i mean she's, she's still going right like it's crazy
1: <laughs> yeah and and so i remember watching her in 98 and and tatiana kochenko for ukraine at a very young age and thinking like wow they're my age like i could be at the next olympics so i think i think nagana was probably the first olympics that really solidified like this is this could be achievable
0: it's crazy to think watching an Olympics and then thinking that's achievable, because as you as you say, I could be at the next Olympics. You were at the next Olympics. So it's kind of, you know, four years sounds like a long time on paper. But obviously, I can imagine for, for an athlete when you're going around the world every year and that's your goal, like it goes by pretty quickly. So that must be crazy to kind of look back on that and think that was your mindset during your first Olympics you're really paying attention to. And then four years later, you're standing on the podium with a medal around your neck.
1: And four years, I mean, can either go extremely quickly and you can have huge leaps and bounds like from 16 to 20 and being at those first Olympics or it can feel like an eternity, right? A lot can happen in four years to to change that dream and change that goal. So that that first four years, like watching at, at 15, 16 and then being there is like probably – that huge thrilling moment where you go from just competing nationally to all of a sudden competing internationally and making podiums. And then, and then finally walking into those Olympic games, which is, which is in and of itself a, a massive achievement for any athlete.
0: In terms of competing nationally obviously i can imagine a little bit different to what we've got here in, in australia you've got plenty of places where you can compete is it sort of is it like a a national youth circuit you kind of do in canada before you're going off to to world cups and that or is it essentially a case of you reach a level and you are going straight to a world cup instead of just going around the country competing nationally
1: well when i in the canadian system i actually didn't specialize in aerials until I was about 15 so I actually did all three events including like ballet wow. back in the day so all right um, that, that, was well, like, that was still no. a
0: thing we're, we're still hoping that's going to make a return we want to see it
1: <laughs> <laughs> I feel like since you know 90s fashion is coming back maybe ballet yeah. should as well or not even coming back it's here um but yeah so I I competed uh nationally like in provincial and, and things like Alberta games in in all of those events <clears throat> and then you know started to compete in something called North American Cups and still did all three events. But it's, it's funny how achievement works. I I was always losing to a mogul skier named Jen Heil, who was a year younger than me. And so like quickly understanding that maybe I wasn't going to be the best at moguls. And so around 15, when I was, when I was winning aerial competitions and, and, you know, moving faster on the development side in that capacity, uh, chose that and and we used to train at a mountain called Fortress where the Australians and and the Americans would come preseason so you would see that World Cup level and and so there was like visibility from what it looks like at a provincial and national level to seeing international competitors in their training environment which I think was hugely part of my development and understanding that it wasn't that far away to to be training at, at that level and competing at that level.
0: And was it Common, or is it still common for freestyle skiers to go across the disciplines? Because, I mean, its I can't imagine it's much like Alpine where there's not a huge difference between a downhill and a super G, whereas, I mean, there's a pretty big difference between aerials and, and moguls.
1: I think it's kind of gone by the wayside, but I, I think that's unfortunate. I mean, at the heart of developing any type of skier, it is like a skiing fundamental ability if you can ski moguls then you can probably land pretty well out of an aerial jump and I would say it's actually probably gone the opposite as as moguls has has changed towards you know acrobatics within moguls you see a lot of mogul skiers learning aerial aerials at a young age because they need that skill when they transfer over to moguls like they're doing double triple fulls I mean Mikhail Kingsbury is is pushing the limits to try and do doubles so you look at what they're doing in their sport, and it's almost gone the other way, where they've come over and they're learning acrobatics at a young age. And Alex Bilodeau, who's also Canadian and and won the and our historic gold in 2010, yeah. like he was probably the first mogul skier that had an aerial background and was able to transfer that over successfully into the moguls and kind of build that new system where that acrobatic skill needs to be inherent.
0: Our co-host on the show sadly couldn't be with us today, Colin. He he's a mad, mad Moguls fan. Uh, and he, he travels to to Calgary basically to watch the World Cup, I think, every single year. And we we just we can't shut him up on this show when when the Moguls come <laughs> around. But um yeah, it's I mean, freestyle skiing is obviously very close to a lot of Australians' heart because it's pretty much our most successful sport when it comes to the Olympics. Obviously, we've had some pretty good aerial skiers and some pretty good mogul skiers as well. So it is one of these few winter sports in Australia that we're we're very familiar with i'm just i'm just disappointed that um ski ballet didn't kind of last a distance outside of the the demonstration sport like i i'm glad to see it still exists uh Deirdre, but what do we have to do to get it back and sort of in the olympic schedule because i love those videos that float around every now and then when you see what it was like back at the olympics it's fun
1: you know what is so interesting is like i watch slopestyle and i see them doing i see them doing like inherently ballet moves as they as they start to become more creative and more artistic in that event so i mean does does ski ballet have to come back i don't i don't know i'm i'm not sure that we need more judged sports that are like very subjective um but it was you know what it was great for is it was a feeder system for for young girls into the sport and i think that um it just it spoke to like how girls interact with activity and was a feeder to all the other sports so I think losing it probably um in retrospect was was negative to freestyle skiing and and I wish you know more could have been done to to keep it
0: was it fun when you did it though like I mean it looks like it's a fun sport
1: it was it was so interesting and fun and choosing your music and like learning these like I, I used to spend hours doing pole flips in the summer on our front lawn, like just learning how to go upside down and practicing. So yeah, you bet it was fun. Like it was, it was great.
0: What was the best song you ever performed to? Can you remember?
1: The Flintstones. Like. It- oh.
0: <laughs> Wow! Now uh, tell me, there's video footage of this. Come on, now. There's got to exist. Oh, I'm exist. sure.
1: I'm, I'm sure. Faye and Steve Dion have it somewhere. I don't know if uh, I'll be digitizing it anytime soon.
0: <laughs> might be something we have to, uh, yeah, yeah, keep keep on and uh, push our luck with that one. Just just randomly, you mentioned about growing up in Alberta. I, I feel like I've got to ask the standard Alberta hockey question here because this might direct the tone of this interview moving forward. Are you a supporter of either of the two teams, and are you Oilers or Flames?
1: Oh, that's like the toughest question for, I, I grew up in Red Deer, which is like dead smack in the middle of bowl. So I feel like bandwagon jumping all the way. But if I, if I had to choose, I, I also work in like at our national broadcaster now. So I, I cheer for whoever drives the most revenue, which is the Toronto Maple Leafs at the moment. <laughs> but my heart is, my, my heart is probably with the Oilers. I mean, Connor McDavid mm. is a special, special athlete. So mm. anytime you get to see him.
0: Yeah, I was gonna whip my Flames jersey out behind me if you had the right answer, but I'm um, I'm
1: okay with that too. That's know? okay, like, right? Okay, I that, can that, jump. I can jump Ben Reagan.
0: Yes, well, Colin will be happy too. Colin's a, a Leafs fan, so kind of you, you've impressed one of us at least on the uh, on the show here today. But when it when it obviously came, you're progressing through the ranks. You have a pretty good rookie World Cup season, winning a medal at your first ever World Cup event. Pretty pretty special moment. Kind of how was it, sort of to go on the world stage and and start entering the podium there and kind of as you're pushing towards Salt Lake kind of, you know, the momentum of building a bit there. I mean, that must be a pretty special feeling to kind of have that happening at that point in your career.
1: The success early is like the greatest indicator of you're on the right path. So I think going into that season and having success really changed the narrative for, for myself and also probably my team that it isn't just about participating in that Olympics, like how do you go there? and come away with a medal, like Olympics happen once every four years or this, you know, past time, five, whatever, but they're, they're just like a snapshot and they're, they're only a small tidbit of a career. And so being able to have that momentum and have that success going into an Olympic season and the confidence going in that it could be achievable to get a medal at any games, not necessarily just your second or just your third with experience, I think was, was important. And as it all played out, like hugely beneficial, because you, you don't know what's going to happen any day in any sport at any given time. And so making sure that um, we went into those Olympics, knowing that everybody had a chance to medal on our team and going in with that philosophy as a, as a Canadian coaching staff and a Canadian team that it wasn't like this person is our medal contender. And these people are here for experience. Like it truly was. Any given person on this team could walk away with with a medal, or we could sweep a podium. And and I think that mentality was was beneficial to me because it changed the narrative from "you're just going to be here and experience it" to like "you better talk to everybody because you have a chance to win a medal and and make sure you're prepared."
0: Because you also get a bronze in the World Championships a year before Salt Lake as well, so I mean I can imagine that that boosts that confidence level. Because is is aerials a sport where momentum plays a fact that if all of a sudden you're having a really good season that you kind of go into that competition, the next one kind of feeling a bit invincible or is it kind of more of, as you were saying there, competition-based? So you might be doing good in one competition, then a month later you're kind of not having your best meet.
1: For me, confidence was like the the differentiator. When when you're having success, you feel like you feel things more strongly. You understand where you are. Landing isn't isn't work. You just know where your feet are. And so – Um, when that success happens and you're getting podiums, then you're, you're feeding off that success week in week out, but it also is like a sport that moves locations. So there's certain locations that feel more comfortable just based on like steepness of Hill and the feel of the snow or, or what have you. So I think a combination of both where you need a little bit of, of, of momentum, but also sometimes you just have places where you're better. Than other places based on conditions
0: in the lead up to salt lake were there test events or world cup events at park city had you kind of competed previously at salt lake before the actual olympics
1: we had done yes one world cup and i had it was it was my second world cup and i think i had i'd had a podium so i'd already had good good vibes on that location and and it was just a first class facility and and growing up out west, like the snow conditions in, in western North America are more aligned with what I'm used to compared to like the, the east where it's heavy and icy and, and a little bit, um, I'd say more wet. Uh, I loved Utah. It was like the perfect, perfect place for, for good vibes for me.
0: Do you remember that moment when you had officially qualified for the Olympics and what that feeling was like knowing that you were officially an Olympian at that point?
1: well I don't think you're officially an Olympian until you walk into that stadium or have that first jump so I I mean I the way our system worked is it was built off podium so as soon as I had that very first podium in my very first world cup like the Olympics was in the equation and then it was just about getting some consistency getting some experience so being named to that team a few weeks in advance of the Olympics was it was a dream come true like it's feels like you've achieved everything you wanted in life, but you're only 19 and you have no idea like that. There's so much more to life than just this, this one moment. But um, I was incredibly proud and, and incredibly grateful and, and everything that goes along with like, at least checking off something on your, on your dream list.
0: And was it a case of you're able to really soak in that Olympic atmosphere? Were you so focused on the competition at the time that you weren't really doing that? Or were you able to take in the village experience if you got to do the opening ceremony, things like that, and kind of just really soak up all those little moments that make being an Olympian so special?
1: So I I did opening ceremonies. I I did the village like I did it all. And I would say, I, I don't it was quickly like not enough just to be there to be an Olympian. Like it was to be there to win a, a gold medal. And so uh, I felt, I think more nervous. Um, we were late in the games. Ariel's is, is like, you know, after second week, mid second week um, in 2002. So you're watching people when you're seeing like what success is compared to what not being on the podium looks like as like people come in and out of Canada house and and how that looks and feels as it plays out from, um, you know, an achievement level or a celebration standpoint. So I, I felt nervous, I'd say in that first Olympics and also intimidated. I mean, four years out of watching so many Canadians win medals and, and meeting those Canadians and like being in the same places as, as as basically heroes that I'd watch for a country and celebrated. So, uh, it was a relief when we like, took ourselves we took ourselves out of the village right before the competition and it went back to just being about um, aerials and, and what I had to do. And, and that was a huge relief for me.
0: And I can imagine too being so close to Canada. I mean, it's the closest you can have to a home game without being a, a home game. So uh, you know, do you have many sort of family and, you know, coming down to, to watch you as well, friends because it is so close to home?
1: So my, my family, like my two brothers, my parents came and then I had, we had a, a rule, um, you know, they say plan everything. And so I had my mom as like the, the point person for friends and family. But my my three best friends from, from home wanted to surprise me at the Olympics. My mom's like, this is a horrible idea. So they were supposed to surprise, but they drove all night And had quite the adventure driving from Alberta down to Utah as, you know, young teenagers. And I wasn't supposed to see them because they were supposed to stay hidden, but they like had all the times wrong and they didn't know where they were. So they were like six hours early for competition. So they were the only people um, there that day that were like dressed up and they had signed. So they were very noticeable, but I did have, I did have people that I loved and, and that had supported me through both the ups and the downs in the crowd and. I'm so thankful that I had that for both my Olympic experiences.
0: Do you remember going back to what I asked before about the very first jump you ever did? Do you remember that first jump at the Olympics when it came to qualifying for the, for the final and, and what that feeling was like when you're at the top of the hill staring down and there you are, you, you are an officially Olympian at that point.
1: I, I absolutely do. Like those, those nerves, I, th- I think are something that you can't even describe, like I'm always nervous for competition and, and shaky and, and the heart is constantly like beating out of control. Um, but it was on a whole different level there and, and just standing up there and, and really going through both like what you imagined it would be, but then implementing all the exercises to try and bring it down. And then that first jump, I mean, it went as, as great as it could have gone. I, I did exactly the jump that I, I knew that I needed to do. And that was kind of the building block to say okay like now there's 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 not any chaos now it's just about implementing the plan and and getting into finals was implementing that plan regardless of of the standing but um if I remember correctly like I was exactly in I think in fifth position going in and so I was I was right where I felt I I needed to be.
0: And, of course, then the, the mood amongst you and the two Veronicas must have been pretty good then to have all three of you make the final. As you said, possibility of a podium sweep was uh, well on the cards at that point.
1: For our coaching staff, like, unbelievable and 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 wonderful because, you know, I, I say this so often and I truly believe it and especially as I get older and more reflective on it, but my, my coaches and our coaches, because we all had the same coaching staff, woke up every day trying to make our dreams of winning medals come true and so to be in that moment and to have three of us which is like you know 25 percent chance of a medal in that final competition it's also their dreams and it's funding for the the sport and um, recognition for for the association that's invested in you so to be in that position I think we felt Great. i think there was a lot of nerves going from like semifinals to finals just because you're you're halfway there but you still have to implement and you still have to perform and and it's great to have be in in the finals but you have to show up again and and make sure that it's it's not for naught.
0: because at that point too canada had never meddled in in women's aerials either so it's kind of that that possibility to be part of history, essentially, as you're saying, a 25% chance of bringing a medal home for Canada, which, you know, obviously means a lot to the sport, means a lot to things like funding and, and everything along those lines too.
1: Absolutely. And and the men's program had been so strong always. And and the women's probably, you know, in, in record books or, or medal counting, like not as strong, but an opportunity for us to really put a stake in the ground and also alleviate some of the pressure from, from the men. I know on the mogul side, we didn't win a medal in that games and we'd had a few fourth place. So there was already that like feeling of, Oh, we're so close. So knowing that like nobody had really um, stood on the podium yet added a level of pressure to, to all three of us. But I think, you know, speaking on behalf of, of both, you know, big V and little V as we called them, um, I think we all felt pretty good going into the finals.
0: And what's that period like then? It's a two-day turnaround, if I'm not mistaken, kind of from the the final, the fi- uh, the, quali- the semi to the final. What what do you do to, I guess, stay in the zone? Is there something mentally that you kind of do? Do you limit interacting with people for distractions? Uh, do you just put on some tunes in the village? Like, how do you kind of keep yourself focused ahead of an Olympic final when there's two days in between?
1: Wow. I, I, you know what, I don't even remember that time in between now that you, there was two days, I'm sure I just like, it probably had MTV live back in like, <laughs> that's that's what was so cool about the U S like being in the U S back then. Um, I think it was, I think it was just like, you know, don't be in the zone the whole time. Like be I was 19. I think we probably just treatment and visualization and whatever we had to do and the rest of it was relax and know that like you can't spend two days thinking about a moment two days from now you're going to be exhausted by the time you get there so making sure you're doing everything to just stay in the moment of as is and and not think too far ahead.
0: And is it a case when you're competing in a competition like the Olympics or world championships or anything, are you a a nervous competitor and is that sort of a benefit to you? I know a lot of athletes sometimes build on those nerves and they kind of, they help them But sometimes it's the opposite. I mean, kind of how do you deal with that side of things when it comes to a competition like the Olympics?
1: I love the nerves. Like I definitely needed that to, to elevate the importance and the performance. And, and I say that with like the caveat that in times those nerves can be debilitating. So finding that like right balance between I'm excited, I'm ready, I can do this, I'm engaged, but not allowing those nerves to be all encompassing. So, um, you know, I, I greatly remember that the change in like uh, the body at that games where you're just so on edge because you're just all your heart is beating your mind is racing and so it was really about relaxing those nerves and understanding that even on competition day it's a long day like you do warm up you train and not reading into a crash or not reading into a thought or a negative feeling or whatever it is but really just staying in that moment because those jumps are are three or four seconds long and You're there for hours, so you're going to have every thought in the books during those hours, but what matters is really how you show up in those four or five seconds.
0: I'm just looking here at the final, and this is an incredibly stacked final looking in terms of who actually – competed in that when it comes to particularly say olympic experience obviously with world cup and everything there i mean outside yourself veronica and, and Alyssa obviously being on the podium you've got the great alice super is right there uh, performing you got zuna nan who got a medal in nagano you've got lee nina of course great skier you've got lydia uh not lassler at the time but obviously now lassler now two-time olympic medalist. first olympics at, at that time back in 2002 i mean an incredibly stacked field. I I don't have the research in front of me here, Deidre, to say if this is the most stacked women's aerial final at the Olympics in history, but that's a pretty impressive field to look back on. Now, who was competing in that final?
1: Yeah, I have. I'm I'm fortunate. I mean, all of those those women were incredible in their own right. So to to call those my peers and my friends is is pretty special. And as you named off, you know, a lot of those names, like those are those are women that. I competed against, but we also learned from daily. So, um, you know, Lydia back in, in 2002 was like, she was just breaking into the sport and she, you could just see like the amount of determination and, and like force that she was going to be. And she was so early and yet she like showed up to win and you're like, Hey, wait a minute. You've been here for like a minute. And, and so Um, I, yeah, like that was a, that was a wonderful time in women's aerials and it's continued to be amazing. Like I watched the women today, like pushing the boundaries and you see like Laura and Danny and, and they're out there and they're doing triples and it's like nothing for them. And it's, it's incredible to know that like with each passing of time, there's been a generation of, of women that have pushed the sport and pushed each other to be better. And that's, I think that's incredible.
0: We are obviously very big fans of Lydia in this country, uh, obviously for for a variety of reasons. Uh, Obviously what she did back in uh, Sochi to get her her bronze was almost better than what she did to get her gold. And, And a fun fact, I don't know if you know this about her, pretty decent Survivor player. She's been on two seasons <laughs> of Australian along. Survivor. You, you did follow it, did you?
1: Oh yeah. Yeah. If I could have put bets on Lydia, man, I would have, I would have like bet my house that she could have taken any of those competitions. I was sometimes being too strong in those types of competitions, <laughs> is it backfires on you. But I mean, I'm a huge fan too. There's, there's very few people that you meet in life that are as dynamic and as capable and as what made what makes Lydia so special is um, she achieves by bringing everyone along with her and I I can't say that about every competitor in sport where um, especially women's sport where often the atmosphere is built to pit you against one another and and you're taught that you need to achieve in spite of and, and Lydia, you know, she just called bullshit on all that right from the beginning. It was like, we're going to be better together and and I'm going to cheer for you as much as you're going to cheer for me. And and she brought the sport along, but she brought people along with her in like the most positive, um, inspiring way possible. And I think that is what makes her so different and so special. Uh, and And she's just, I mean, you'll never meet somebody that is as confident and as dominant and as, as just willing to get her hands dirty to say, like, what do we need to do to get there?
0: Yeah, no, absolutely. We, we love her. We're very proud of her uh, yeah, in this country as, for, for sure. should be. Now, the competition itself, you get an 88.98 on that first jump, but in the second jump, you get the highest score out of anyone, 100.28, get the bronze. What's that feeling like on jump two when, when you realize that, you're going to get a medal like i mean is, is it a pretty exciting feeling that you've achieved that i mean are you disappointed that you don't get the gold like i mean how are the sort of the feelings when you when you walk away from from the olympic Games with a medal of, of any color really
1: well it's not as linear as that what the i guess the issue being like i i ran fifth last right so i had the best jump i've ever done and the highest score on that jump and so i catapulted into first which you know like you're like amazing like i i showed up i did everything i could i i did my best jumps like i did everything i could when it mattered the most and then you you like wait and so it was excruciating is how i would describe it um came 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 down next and and her score from the first jump like put her just ahead of me and so as much as you're like thrilled, you're now in second, right? Like I'm so happy. And she had come off a a knee surgery. So to see her succeed, it was great. And then Elisa was next. So now it's like, all right, everybody's passing you. So Elisa goes ahead of both of us. And so now it becomes extremely stressful because it's, you prepare to think that I'm going to go there and I'm going to jump to like my greatest ability. And if I get those scores, like the thought is you you're going to win. And what you don't prepare for is necessarily that like you can do all of that and potentially walk away without a medal or be fourth place or fifth place. So, um, I, I sat back and like, as much as, uh, I, I Allah was Alla and, and Olga. So two Belarus and Russia were, were left to go. And, and as much as you're like, <laughs> hoping everyone does their best. I mean, let's be real. You're also hoping they drag a hand or they slap back because <laughs> at this point you're holding on to a bronze medal. And so it, it did play out that way. And, and Allah had a, a slap back and she was unable to land. And then Olga uh, was up doing some triple flips and, and her landing percentage wasn't high. So I was just like holding Veronica, hoping that, you know, she didn't pull a rabbit out of her hat. And, and then in that moment, like, it's it's pure joy like especially when as i said you look at like your teammate and your coaches who are just like their dreams happen through you and and importantly for me like look at my my parents and and my brothers who are are jumping up and down and my dad looks like he's almost had a heart attack as he's like witnessed all of this happen and and like through it all the family is there on the back end, not just supporting you from the financial side, but also the emotional side. Like I I left my parents' house at 14 years old to go chase a dream of going to the Olympics and, and went to school through, you know, distance learning before internet was really a thing. And, and so they trusted me in every aspect of like carving this path for myself. And they didn't know anything about freestyle skiing. And all they hoped was that, at the end of it, I would feel like what I really needed to achieve was was met. And so watching them know that that risk that they'd taken and that it was it was worth it and, and that they were so proud was was so special.
0: And was it a special homecoming? Do you and Jamie then go back to your high school as gold and bronze medalists? And were there any athlete, athletes on the team then from your same high school? Is this some special high school we should all be knowing about that's producing <laughs> these Olympic medalists?
1: Well, I, ironically, I think there was like seven Olympians from my hometown at wow. those games. And so, um, you know, Jeremy Weatherspoon, who's like the greatest speed skater of all time was also from, from our, our sized little Alberta town. So I think like, yeah, there was a huge homecoming and, and Jamie wins the gold. I mean, she, she's in the history books for all sorts of reason around that gold medal. So <laughs> it, it was an interesting Olympics for sure. And, and yeah, like we, I, I think it just changes the narrative of what's possible uh, when you grow up in a, a community that has facilities and invests in sports and believes that, that sport is important to the development of people.
0: I have to ask my standard go-to question for our medalists. Um, what do you do with the medal? Uh, is, it, is it on display? So you've got some medals I, I see on display yeah, behind you, but is the Olympic one, is that somewhere on display?
1: It is on display. It's actually not right now. Cause I, I now I have two kids, one's four. And so he witnessed his first Olympics, this go around with Tokyo. And so right. he wore the medal to daycare, which was interesting. Wow. But uh, so he, like, if he wants to wear it, then he'll just throw it on. And it's, it's fun to see it through like the lens of, of somebody that just thinks that people go to the Olympics and that everybody like goes and wins medals. So it's, it's been fun to watch it through a next generation.
0: Now, the amazing part of your story, of course, Tijer, which I'm sure many people are aware of, is what happened in the lead up to Turin. Uh, obviously, with uh, your broken neck, which I believe did that happen in Australia? Was that at Mount Buller?
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah.
0: Wow. Okay. Yeah. Uh, in behalf of Australia, I'm sorry that that's where it, where it, where it happened. <laughs> but- no, I'm
1: I'm so fortunate it happened in Australia. I mean, it could have happened in many different countries with less established medical uh, facilities and experience. So I am so fortunate.
0: Was it, Uh, were you then in Australia for a while with your recovery? Was And was that what, Melbourne, I'm guessing, would have been the, the closest big city where you would have had to go to?
1: Yes, I was at um, the Royal Victoria Hospital, yep. is that correct, yep. in Melbourne? Yep. And so, yeah, airlifted out of Buller and um, spent four days figuring out like what the next path was and then had a, a C4, C5 fusion where they basically took my my hip bone and they turned it into my neck bone with uh an anterior and posterior uh opening so that they could fuse my spine and i honestly like the medical team and in, in that hospital were were unbelievable and so so confident and and i'm actually incredibly lucky it happened in australia because uh, the neurosurgeon who did the, the surgery in Canada, that surgery is done very rarely, but I'm told in Australia because of all the equestrian um, and nice. the, they do about four times or five times the amount of spinal fusion in Australia than they did in Canada at that time. So he, his experience was second to none and he was very forward thinking and it wasn't like oh, you may never do this again. I was like, yeah, you'll get back up there. Like, I'm so good at my craft. There's no no chance that you're not walking under this and be successful again.
0: Insane. And, and five months later, you're at another Olympics. I mean, I, I can't imagine that when you come out of surgery and, and everything that's happened, uh, I mean, are you that sort of so focus on your goal. I'm, If this is what my surgeon is saying, I'm going to the Olympics still, Or Are there moments of doubt in that period where you're like, oh, maybe I'm not going to be able to make it to the Olympics in five months time? Oh,
1: I, I I, mean, I was a shell of a human at that Olympics, but I would say the goal wasn't, okay, how do I get there and win a medal? I mean, that's, ex- that's externally what you're saying to yourself. But I think at that moment where you almost lose everything. It's about redefining and establishing that you're not changed or you're still okay as a person. So I I just think like when I laid there and, and thought like, okay, I could not be walking. Like that's a, that's a legitimate outcome that could have happened. How do I not have this steal everything that I loved and everything that I was before. And so getting back up and getting to the Olympics was almost like, my personal way of proving to myself that this wasn't going to define who I was or what I'm capable of. And, and so I think like, was the goal, get back to the Olympics and win a medal? Like, yeah, that's what I told everyone. But I think internally it was like, how do I just reestablish that even though chaos happened and everything was taken out of my control and I was scared out of my mind and I thought I may never walk again or, or live the life that, that, skiing had given me that this was a way to prove that if I could get there, then this is just a small little hill and not a mountain that I need to climb. And and honestly, the proudest thing I've ever done in my life, like the Olympic medal is great, but that journey and and feeling like that low and understanding that I was scared and not capable or not as strong and still having to get up there and go through the process was was like an amazing life lesson to understand like what real stress is and and what really like a real low is and what rebuilding looks like and having to find success in what others would look at as um a failure going there and not even coming close to finals or I think the only person I beat on was Lydia who blew her knee at those Olympics so like it it was it was a pretty low point for both of us um but like finding success personally in that is probably a huge growing moment that continues to fuel me today
0: because i can imagine that yeah as you're saying like winning an olympic medal is great but i mean just overcoming all of that that you just achieve in such a short space of time i mean different sense of achievement but it's still something that uh yeah as you're saying kind of you look back on and think of both moments weirdly with with a positive light
1: you have to, right? Like you, the world can define success as standing on an Olympic podium, but if I only found success in what everybody else told me was great, then it'd be a pretty empty life. And so I think that learning that lesson through sport of saying like, I need to understand what is an achievement for myself personally, and then carry myself with that, with that judgment, as opposed to walking in a room and having people celebrate you for an external achievement that maybe was really easy like that day at the olympics in 2002 everything went according to plan and it was easy and i i made it easy but I, w- I wasn't given any obstacles like i was in 2006 and overcoming those obstacles is actually what true success is for an individual and so knowing that going into life after sport and and the career that i'm in now it's like you know test me throw whatever you want at me and and I'll be able to shake it off and continue to succeed. And that wasn't learned by winning a medal. That was learned by overcoming everything to just get there in the end.
0: Which I want to talk a little bit about sort of that post-Olympic career in just a moment. But before I get to that, Vancouver, obviously, you're on track for it. But then I believe you're diagnosed with a, a temporal lobe brain tumor. Is that correct? And what sort of what happened there and kind of basically how, I mean, how close was that to the Olympics where you sort of this gets discovered and, and, and everything around that?
1: So I believe it was like September of 2009. So going into the, the, the games and I had a seizure in my sleep overnight and woke up and had hit the bedside table and nothing had happened or I hadn't hit my, like it wasn't concussion related. It wasn't trauma related. It was just a nighttime seizure. And so it took a long time to figure out what was happening. But um, it was the first episode and as they did, many, many scans, they found that I basically have a birthmark on my right temporal lobe, and I'd never had any symptoms. But at that point, my brain was just, I think, saying, like, get out, (laughs) like, get Mm -hmm. out. And, and so it it was a life moment that was hard to take because Vancouver Olympics, Home Olympics. um, But I was on I was on a different place in my career where I was holding on as opposed to building to achievement. And so I think this was, a clean break that made it really simple like it was over and i had to find new passions new space and and figure out who i was without the sport and and fortunate for me that i didn't have it to fall back on so it wasn't like oh i'll just do another competition or one more year it was it was over and it it was time to to move on
0: which yeah, again, kind of overcoming that diversity. I'm just September before an Olympics is not a very good month for you. <laughs> uh, I'm feeling right or, now.
1: Or is it a time of change and development? Well, maybe, no, maybe it's all, it's, how you, it's all how you look at it.
0: <laughs> it's a sign. It's a sign. But you turn that into uh, you mentioned previously about sort of working for for the national broadcaster, CBC. I, I believe you sort of been part of olympic coverage in in the past i mean what's that like kind of transitioning from an athlete then into being part of the broadcast then? because we we just saw in tokyo here in australia we had some of the best expert commentators i'd I'd ever seen kind of transition and just they really obviously your role is to bring that element to us watching at home to kind of understand the sport more i mean how do you find that transition bringing your expertise as, as an olympian and a competitor to bring that out to the audience watching at home
1: Well, it's it's interesting. That's like my passion project. Um, So I do that, you know, for for CBC here in Canada around aerials, because like, there's just not that many experts that can break down and analyze a a quint twisting triple backflip. So definitely like my my career, I actually work at Rogers Media, which is uh, our largest broadcast partner. And I'm on I'm in the boardroom on the senior leadership team on that side. So went to law school and work in a business role there on strategy. And so I, I live like Sports media as as a whole every day and so the Olympics is is passion and the fact that I get to go and like do what I would do in my living room um but bring the sport to Canadians who realistically like only witness the sport at the Olympics uh it's it's fun because what we see as a trained acrobatic eye and how I value and look at a jump is so different than someone that's never seen it before it just looks like chaos and then like ski out or or like crash and so breaking it down and, and bringing like some education to what goes into that moment for athletes is, is a unique position to be in. And I'm, I'm lucky that I think I'll be doing it for, for these upcoming games. Um, the downside is like, it's a, I still get emotionally invested. So to, to remember that, like, I'm not in my living room and how I would react to somebody potentially not having success or like who I'm secretly cheering for is, is not probably the best uh, way to, to bring the sport to Canadians. So having a filter is uh, the challenge that exists with that.
0: I remember vividly back in Pyeongchang when uh, David Morris, sadly, we still think got robbed uh, of his uh, score in that. And we had Jackie Cooper, I think, trying to do her very best at, uh, you know, calmly explain what was going on while every single Australian is throwing the remotes at the TV. So um, we, we need people like you, Diedra, to kind of calm us down in the best possible way when we're getting very angry at judging in your sport. <laughs>
1: Yeah. And it's not always explainable. I think that's, that's the tricky part about being in a subjective sport and especially when you're calling it from not being there in person. Like, so what you see on screen doesn't necessarily translate to like what the judges see from the angle they see it in person, because you just have a, you have a complete different perspective and different angles and obviously instant replay, which they don't have.
0: Before we let you go, I need to quickly ask about Beijing. Um, obviously, as as Australian, we're 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 quite quite keen on a certain Laura. Peel to see how she goes. Obviously, being the reigning world champion. But I mean, who else should we be keeping an eye on outside of us being biased Aussies and the likes of Alora and a, and a Danny? Are there, are there any other ones out there that we really should be uh, keeping an eye on ahead of Beijing?
1: I I, I think Laura's fantastic, but I watch Danny jump, and I think that there's never been a greater talent out there. So I'd love to see her be able to. Um, bring it at the Olympic stage and just be able to channel uh what it takes to to bring your best in the biggest moment ever because she is she's a special talent and then uh, you know i i look to belarus and and say there there's some impressive women out there doing some triple flips and with hannah huskova coming back like i think it's going to be an incredible final and then finally like china winning gold in china they have yet to win an Olympic gold. And that is something that who knows what they've been working on with COVID. They've been training so hard in their own country. They haven't had a lot of international experiences that can benefit them. Is it not like all of that training and all of that inner competition with their team? Will it actually like translate to being ready and confident on the Olympic side, or, or will that lack of uh, international experience over the last year and a half handcuffed them. I don't know.
0: Well, we're looking forward to it so much to see how it all plays out. Did you any if people want to follow your your journey, kind of what you're up to, social media, website, anything that people can sort of us up to date with what you're up to.
1: I mean, I'm on Instagram, but it, only if you want to see my dog and my kids. But uh, <laughs> I, I live a pretty I live a pretty behind the scenes life here in Canada, and I, I do really love like shaping the industry from the boardroom where I think you know so often as an athlete you're taught to that the spotlight lives um on the court but I strongly believe the the longevity in a career and making change happens like in the boardroom um so striving to to make those changes behind the scenes now as opposed to on the field of play.
0: Fantastic. Well, it's uh, been an absolute pleasure to be able to learn about your journey and everything else to do with your Olympic experiences and everything else in between. I'm sure our Canadian listeners will be looking forward to uh, seeing and hearing you in uh, a short amount of time uh, come the uh, the Beijing coverage. But uh, learn a lot today, Jidra. It's uh, been a pleasure to, to speak to you a little bit more uh, about the sport and your career and off the podium today. So thank you very much.
1: Thanks, Ben, and good luck with the podcast. Hope you keep doing what you guys are doing. It's fun to listen.
0: And a massive, massive thanks to Deirdre there. A lot of fun learning about that and uh, learning about the sport itself, of course, and uh, hearing about those hopes, potentially. Speaking up, uh, Danny and Laura, ahead of the Beijing Olympics, two former guests on this show, of course, and we know the track record when it comes to me and interviewing australians and the lack of success that has happened at olympics since so we are crossing those fingers that that gets broken because we have a guest coming very soon who uh also is a very large medal chance for australia at the olympics and uh yeah i probably shouldn't be saying these things out loud should i just uh jinxing it further but big thanks to didra a lot of fun great chat there and in the meantime if you want to stay up to date with all these interviews who we've got coming up and of course our beijing coverage coming very very soon search for off the podium on all podcast platforms and you can find us there subscribe leave us some feedback we'd love to know what you think of the show and everything else in between and social media of course too you can uh, go back and see what we've had on the show track down some old interviews interact with us let us know what you're thinking of the show and everything else too search for off the podium on instagram twitter and facebook and that's how you can stay up to date with us That's simple we're also so close to our 200 episode can you believe it it feels like we were just doing our 150th episode but it'll be another clip show for you we're going to go over the best bits from episodes 151 through to 199 all the interviews that we've had all the other fun little chats that we've had with colin and jared along the way too so stay tuned for that as well big thanks again to deirdre big thanks again to you the listener for listening to the show my name is ben special shout out as always to jason momoa and as always to go left an episode you loved every single second of it it's ben again just quickly reminding you once again if you want to help us win a sports podcast award sportspodcastawards.com register to vote click on best olympic and paralympic podcast section listen to the other nominees and then go hey off the podium's awesome they're so good they put in so much work and so much effort and we just love them and they deserve to go on the podium for once ben's awesome jared's awesome colin's okay but he's also kind of awesome We'd really appreciate it. And particularly if you've actually listened to the rest of this and ended up here because generally I assume you've well and truly tuned out by now. But seriously, if you're at this point of the podcast, then you're a true listener. And that means that you're a true fan and you should vote for us. Sportspodcastawards.com. Do it now. We will thank you forever, literally ever, like every episode moving forward. We will thank you forever. Sportspodcastawards.com. All right. Thanks for tuning in. We'll speak to you next time on Off the Podium. I'm I'm really going to go now. Bye.